Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is one of the most important welfare programs in the U.S. today. It's actually a highly successful program and incredibly misunderstood. Perhaps because of these misunderstandings, or maybe because of something more sinister happening in our world today, it's often a political target, with many (coughs) Republicans actively working to dramatically decrease the amount spent on the program and the number of people it supports. Most recently, the Trump administration has put forward a proposal to not only significantly cut federal spending on the program, but to majorly overhaul what it looks like and how benefits are administered. Joining the show today to dig into these issues is Caitlin Dewey, a food policy writer for the Washington Post's Wonk blog, who frequently covers SNAP in the news, among many other timely food policy-related topics. Caitlin, welcome to Eating Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. Okay, so let's uh, let's lay the great groundwork first for those who are not as familiar with the ins and outs of this program. How big of a program is SNAP in terms of its overall cost, um, both at the federal level, and then what does this look like for individual recipients? Yeah, so SNAP is an absolutely monstrous program. I mean, it is by far the leading anti-hunger program in the United States. It currently serves, as of December 2017, 41.3 million people. That's slightly over 20 million households. Wow. Um, and most of those people are, are actually children. Um, this is something you don't usually think about when you talk about food stamps, but um, 44% of recipients are children, um, and then the bulk of the remainder, remainder are either elderly people, disabled people, or adults who are working. So it's, it's not the demographic that we often hear about in, in these you know, congressional debates, some of the things you were referencing earlier. Yeah. And um, the typical SNAP recipient is actually a kid. Wow. Okay. So they're not an undocumented, unemployed, um, lazy person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. Okay. Okay, good. Just as long as we, we've established that. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of get into some of the other misunder, uh, misunderstandings about the program in a minute. But, um, okay, so it's a, it's a huge, ginormous program. What, um, how much do recipients receive um, on average? Yeah, so there's a huge range. It's based on things like, you know, how much money your household makes and how many people are in your household and things like that. But on average, uh, the program pays out about $123 per person per month. Okay. And then by household, is that like two something? 
Yeah, so it, it's a little tricky to talk about households, like I said, because it varies by how many people are in them. Right, but yeah. on average, the, your typical household is getting about $250 a month. Um, and then what geographical regions? Are there are there certain kind of pockets throughout the U.S. that have a higher number of recipients, or is it just kind of all spread out? It's actually pretty uniform. Um, something that was surprising to me as I learned more about SNAP is that um, it's it's actually very highly utilized in rural areas as, as well as urban areas. So mm-hmm. you you tend to see people utilizing the program pretty much all over the map. Okay, um, and then uh, what's I mean I guess I should have asked this first, but the actual intention of the program is it yeah like I mean and how long are kind of is it designed to have people on? Um, what is it meant to do? Is it I mean, that's super obvious, but <laughs> question. But. No, it's actually not that obvious. I mean, it's so, I mean, SNAP was originally explicitly an anti-hunger program. It's, you know, supposed to help people um, pay for food when they otherwise wouldn't be able to do so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when they changed the name, I think it, that's going back about 10 years now. Now SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, not just the food stamp program. And mm-hmm. um, that sort of added in a, a nutrition element. Now the purpose of the program is not just to feed people, but also to try to feed people better. Um, so actually, it's not as obvious a question as you thought. Got to give yourself more credit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> and I think it's you know worth pointing out, it's meant to keep um, people out of poverty, right? So, I mean, are these the, the recipients typically those living um, under the poverty line or those like, it seems like the, they're hovering kind of right above? Right above, yeah. So the cutoff for SNAP is 130% of the poverty line. And a lot of research has actually been done, like you said, that shows when you add um, SNAP income to a household's like pre-existing earnings that actually lifts them above the poverty line. That's pretty significant. What does that mean, really, 130%? Um, you know, what, what does that figure translate to? In dollar, in dollar well, amounts. Yeah, it depends on where you live, right? So it's, it's a little tricky to generalize. Um, but, I mean, we're, we are definitely talking about sort of the the neediest among us here, right? I mean, this is the same population of kids who qualify for um, the free lunch program. They're often people who are taking advantage of other sort of government safety net programs as well. I mean, 130% of the poverty line is is not a lot of money. So these are really the the neediest among us. Right. Okay. So like under $40,000 a year-ish is probably a good baseline maybe to just think about. Per, per household? Yeah, definitely, definitely w- way below that in, in most cases. Okay. All right, great. So um, so let's talk about some of these misunderstandings um, that, you know, that, that people just have about the program that kind of get talk, you know, these stories sort of get told again and again, and I think people start to believe them. But um, one of my favorite quotes uh, in a recent statement that, that you wrote about was from the Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, where he said, everyone who receives SNAP deserves an opportunity to become self-sufficient and build a productive, independent life, Um, (laughs) uh, which, okay, so means that, you know, basically he kind of thinks that people on SNAP are disincentivized to work and and maybe even are lazy. Um, True or false? (laughs) Does this program disincentivize people from working? 
Yeah, that's definitely not what the data shows. I'm I'm not sure that Secretary Purdue has that impression. Yeah, of I should. But <laughs> you're like, but there's definitely <laughs> a lot of concern about um, specifically this population of people. And this is a little jargony, but they're called able-bodied adults without dependents. For short, they're called ABODs. <laughs> and there's this rampant perception in SNAP, but also in other welfare programs, that basically all SNAP partic- participants are these adults who could work but are choosing not to. You know, they're, like, sitting on their couches all day eating potato chips that taxpayers paid for. Yeah. Um, and, and we know that that's not true. In fact, according to current Department of Agriculture statistics, only 7% of SNAP participants are unemployed adults who could work but are, are not currently working for whatever reason. Wow. So, uh, th- yeah, it's, it's a very small minority that we know the vast majority of people on the program are either people who cannot work because they are children or they are senior citizens or they're disabled. Mm-hmm. And the majority of adults who can work on the program are working. So that's really a, a kind of a pernicious myth. Right. Um, so they're sitting on the couch eating potato chips or maybe the lobster that they buy with their SNAP benefits and other <laughs> fancy foods. That's another real, I mean, I have actually heard that, you know? Um, so it, it seems kind of crazy that people would choose to buy, you know, some one really, really expensive item with their $125. But I do think people think that um, basically people make a lot of money, but still receive SNAP. Yeah, that's definitely something I've, heard people say, and Lord knows every time I write about SNAP, I I do get an email from a reader who will say, you know, well, I was in the checkout behind someone who was buying filet mignon with food stamps. Yes, that's the Um, other one. (laughs) And, you know, I don't doubt that that these instances do anecdotally occur. Um, You know, there, I'm sure, a handful of people out there making poor budgetary decisions with their SNAP dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, we, we know based on the multiple long-term large-scale studies that have been done on the program, that the vast majority of participants are using their money in actually extremely savvy ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing it to feed their families. They're not doing it because, you know, they want to have, like, a hot date night in with lobster. Yeah, or a dinner party <laughs> or, what or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's just not sort of, like, rational economic behavior. And there's no evidence that you know, the, the majority of SNAP participants behave that way. What about fraud in the program? I think a lot of people um, believe that this is like an incredibly abused uh, program. Is that, is there evidence to support that claim? Um, no, there's not evidence to support widespread fraud. Certainly not. Um, the USDA itself conducts regular audits on this sort of thing. They do different, you know, sorts of um, studies and kind of like undercover, like checking in on um, different retailers and things like that to see if fraud is occurring. There are a lot of checks and balances in place. That doesn't mean that fraud doesn't occur. Um, it When it does occur, it's more commonly on the retailer level um, than it is among participants. Um, what does that but it's not as common as people think. I, I think I read somewhere that it's like 1.5% of recipients that, you know, or there is like, yeah. you know, an inc- like a 1.5% rate of, of abuse of the um, benefits. But what does that look like on the retailer? How can retailers abuse it? 
So this actually isn't something I've reported on personally, so I'm not incredibly knowledgeable about it. Mm-hmm. But you'll see in the news every once in a while a, a retailer getting busted. Maybe, you know, they are running items as a snap transaction when yeah. it, they're actually not or, or things of that nature, sort of like manipulating their point of sale system or, or something like that. I mean, that's not going to be like a major retailer. Maybe that's like a corner store or something like that. Yeah. Um, but again, it's so important to emphasize, like you said, that these are a tiny minority of cases, especially now. You know, it, it, things may have been different back in the day when you were using physical food stamps, but now food stamps are distributed on, um, it's essentially a debit card, an EBT card. And it's very difficult to you sort of pass that around or like you can't, you can't resell a portion of a debit card or something like that. Right. So the system has been designed to prevent fraud and generally it's works really well at that. You also need a pin, right? Just like a traditional typical debit card. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. So, okay. And then what, one other thing I wanted to ask was, um, that you have covered is the, the do basically a lot of people who are on snap, who take advantage of snap uh, or who use snap, I should say, are those undocumented immigrants? Are those people who don't pay income taxes? Yeah. So this is really interesting and obviously really controversial right now. Um, Undocumented immigrants cannot receive food stamps in their own name. You are asked to provide um, evidence of your citizenship as part of applying for the food stamp process. There is, is no universe in which undocumented immigrants are being issued food stamps. Where it does get a little messy and where I think people get confused is that if you're in a household um, that has mixed immigration status, so maybe two undocumented parents and two citizen children, then those children are, of course, eligible for food stamps. They're citizens of the United States, but we don't send food stamp benefits to children. They get sent to the adult parents who buy food for the children. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where some of the confusion comes in. Um, okay, so so I'm glad that we kind of cleared all of those issues up or, or had a chance to address them. Um, there's one more that I think is a little bit more opaque and um, it re- it has to do with the nutritional quality of the foods that SNAP recipients buy versus um, non-SNAP recipients. So there is research from the Harvard Chan Department of Nutrition um, recently done that has shown that SNAP recipients, they spend a higher percentage of their benefits on unhealthy purchases like sugar-sweetened beverages and, you know, just kind of stuff, convenience foods that you'd find um, maybe at the like point of, you know, point of sale, um, area of the cash register, like junk basically. So this Mm -hmm. is especially a problem because on average, um, SNAP recipients are more overweight and at risk of, um, cardiovascular, they've more cardiovascular risk factors and non-SNAP participants, um, with the same income level. So how, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, have you kind of in your work seen this to be a like a misinterpretation um, of the facts or do you basically like what do you what have you kind of read and reported on in terms of the nutritional quality of the food that recipients um, purchase? It's definitely a super important issue and one that seems to be gaining more and more attention every year. I think, I, I mean, 
the issue with this is, and I, you sort of made reference to this, is that there's a lot of different ways to interpret the sales data for mm-hmm. SNAP purchases. Um, actually, I spoke to an economist about this um, about a year ago, and I was asking him, you know, why, why is it that um, SNAP families buy so much worse food nutritionally than other families? And he's like, whoa, 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 like pump the brakes. It is so hard <laughs> to draw that kind of conclusion based on the data we have, right? Yeah. Because it's really hard to say, like, is it causative? Like, is it that SNAP families are buying worse food? Is it just that low-income families who happen to be on SNAP buy worse food? Mm-hmm. Is it that we are comparing data between, like, two retailers and that's, you know, not an apples-to-oranges comparison? So my understanding of the data, and granted, this is, I am not an economist or, you know, a public health person who is, like, deep down in the nutrition weeds here, Mm -hmm. but my understanding is is that it's really hard to say that SNAP participants buy more unhealthy food than other people, but for sure they buy unhealthy food because all Americans do, like, generally our our diets are terrible, Mm -hmm. Um, and because SNAP is taxpayer-funded and because it does reach a vulnerable population, that does make it a, a good place for those sorts of public health nutrition interventions if you are in the camp of, of thinking that, that that's, you know, government's role to do that. Right, which, candidly, I am more in that camp. I have, in my, given my public health background, <laughs> um, but um, also personally very much in support of expanded SNAP benefits. Um, so, I mean, basically, in terms of, like, the government's role of nutrition, there are programs that have more restrictions on the kinds of food that you can buy with um, benefits, um, most notably the WIC program. Can you can you tell us a little bit just briefly about what that looks like? Yeah, so, I mean, WIC basically has a much different mission from SNAP when we were, you know, talking about missions there. Nutrition is kind of like a an added bonus mission in SNAP for, for WIC. That's, like, mm-hmm. essentially why the program exists, right? So um, WIC is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women and Children. It is specifically for pregnant women and young children. It's intended to intervene at a point in a child's life where it's very important for them to get good nutrition in, in order to develop and, and grow and thrive. Um, and because that's the goal of the program... WIC doesn't give you money and allow you to buy whatever you want at the grocery store. It's actually very prescriptive. So WIC will go so far as to tell you, you know, you can buy um, such and such amount of this specific type of milk. You can buy a dozen um, grade A large eggs. It's very prescriptive. But again, there's sort of different goals to that program, and that's why. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll talk more about the administration's recent proposal to completely overhaul um, SNAP and what that would mean for millions of Americans. Stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, any place. 
I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. I say yeah. And we're back on Eating Matters, where I think after that commercial, I want to go to Wisconsin, like right now. Um, okay, anyway, but after I finish our interview with Caitlin Dewey, food policy journalist uh, for the Washington Post Wonk blog, where we're talking about all things SNAP related, um, before we went to the break, I uh, forgot to ask you kind of two basic baseline questions, uh, Caitlin. So the first is, what is the average length of time um, a SNAP recipient receives benefits? And um, it, yeah, so I guess that's that's the number one question in the second program. The second question is, um, you know, it, 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 in everything that I've read about SNAP, it is a highly successful program. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like, especially with regard to, um, you know, how long people are on the program? Yeah, those are both really great and really important questions. So the average household is on SNAP for seven to nine months, less than a year. Wow. Um, it is intended to be a, a temporary program to, you know, while people get back on their feet. And the, the data shows that is how it works. Um, as far as how effective it is, you are absolutely right. It is an enormously effective program. In fact, I've, I've heard some advocates, advocates and economists refer to it as our most effective uh, safety net program, which is high praise. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and because there's a lot of data that shows that households that enroll in SNAP um, experience less food insecurity, less hunger than um, households that don't enroll. So, you know, the, the program meets its main mission there. Right, to keep people kind of above the poverty line before, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, why has there been so much about SNAP in the news right now? Uh, does this have to do with the farm bill or is it, you know, some other kind of piece of legislation that's been proposed? Yeah, all of the above. It's sort of like the perfect storm of <laughs> SNAP shenanigans going on this year. So you're <laughs> right. Um, we do have the farm bill reauthorization coming up. That is the massive legislative package that funds food stamps, among other things. So, you know, there's always a lot of debates about tweaks to the program um, every four years around this time. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, the Trump administration just put out its second annual proposed budget. And while the proposed budget does not have any uh, sort of like force of law, it doesn't actually do anything. It just expresses the administration's priorities. Mm -hmm. And um, the priority for SNAP expressed in this budget was that it essentially be gutted and completely redesigned, which has caused 
a lot of angst and controversy among anti-hunger advocates, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine they're not super psyched about this. Okay, so let's go over what some of these these uh, cuts are. Um, the first is overall spending, right? So how by how much, basically, um, would this proposal cut uh, spending and who would be affected in terms of like the, the category of people receiving benefits right now within SNAP? Yeah, so the, the proposal is pretty radical. It proposed cuts of about 30% over the next decade. That adds up to about $213 billion. Wow. Um, and it would achieve those cuts in two ways. So um, roughly half the cuts would be achieved by redesigning the program through something called the Harvest Box, which I think we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then the other half of the cuts were basically sort of little tweaks, tightening eligibility, sort of slicing certain types of people away from the program and saving money that way. So um, among the groups that were targeted were those able-bodied adults that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. They want to sort of tighten up... um, how much leeway those people get before they're kicked off the program because there are work requirements in SNAP. They want to make those even stricter. Um, They also want to put a cap on how much benefits large families can get. So they would say that a family of eight should get the same amount of money as a family of 12, for instance, if you have a lot of kids. Wow. Um, 12 is a lot of kids. It's a lot of extra people, right? Yeah. Well, do they get, uh, do they get uh, more benefits now or is a, you know, a household just defined as a fixed number of people? No, you do get benefits based on how many people are in your house. They basically want to set, set a cap where they're like, enough is enough. Like you're just going to have to stretch how much we gave you. So what in the cap would be eight people. Okay. And so what is it, um, so can people, if like a family of 12, for instance, is enrolled in SNAP, could that be like $1,000 a month up to or something like yeah, that? There is no yeah, cap right it's now. A, it depends on a lot of factors. It's really hard to generalize. There's like a complex mathematical formula yeah, for this. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, larger families do get a much more substantial benefit than small families or individuals, which, I mean, makes sense. It tracks with the purpose of the program. Right, right. Okay. Um, and so now yeah. they want to cap that. At eight, right, and exactly. then and then stricter work requirements. What does that look like? Since we already established that most of the only seven percent of the people who are able-bodied don't, when who can work don't. So what would these? What are the? How how can you make these more strict? This requirement. Yeah. So it's again, all every everything is complicated in government, <laughs> right? So, yes. <laughs> um, don't I know it? The way these work requirements work now is that. Um, there's, a, there's a, basically a three-month, like, grace period where if you're an able-bodied adult but you don't have a job, you can get snapped for three months before you are booted off the program. Otherwise, you need to have a job or you need to be enrolled in a state program, work training, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the work requirements as they exist now. Um, what the budget proposed doing is... It would keep that three-month period, but in some places that three-month period does not apply because they're high unemployment rates. Mm -hmm. And the budget would like to sort of eliminate those exemptions, make sure that the three-month period applies everywhere, no matter how bad the job situation is. And it would also tighten um, the age restrictions for who is considered an able-bodied adult. So... Right now, that 
period, that waiting period, only applies to you until I believe it's age 49. Mm -hmm. They want to move it up to age 62. Hmm. So basically they're putting more people under these requirements and they're making their requirements stricter in areas with high unemployment rates. Hmm. Um, What, uh, okay, that is, that is... um not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's my official, uh, you know, policy stance on the matter. <laughs> Not great. Great. Okay. Um, all right. Moving on. Um, so what about, so yeah, I want to talk about the harvest box um, in a minute. Um, but what about anything that people could see as, you know, like positive changes? I know that there's been, for instance, a pilot program kind of um, in, uh, you know, that has been running for quite some time to allow recipients to use their benefits, um, online. Um, any, any kind of like revisiting of that, that should be a really great thing in my opinion, or anything to kind of, you know, work around the nutritional requirements to, you know, kind of guide people in the direction of, uh, spending their benefits on healthier foods through education and think, you know, things of that nature. Like anything positive, (laughs) anything good about this proposal. Actually, the budget proposal um, suggested cutting the funding for the sorts of nutrition education you're talking about. Great. um, If if that is um, what you would put in the positive camp, then I have no good news for you. I'm sorry. Um, In terms of other, you know, these sorts of pilot programs you're talking about, um, those will all fall under the farm bill. And we have heard many, many proposals from different advocacy groups, public health groups, all sorts of ideas for running new pilots, for reforming um, different sorts of nutrition education and nutrition incentives, SNAP, um, expansion of the fruits and vegetables incentive programs, which um, basically gives people more money to spend on fresh produce. So there are a lot of initiatives and a lot of energy moving in that direction. They, They just weren't contained in this particular budget proposal. Okay. All right. So one of the ways that the administration wants to, quote, make up for the cuts is to distribute a box of canned goods to some recipients. Um, This proposed change has been described by the Office um, of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney as a, quote, Blue Apron type program, which writer Helena Bottomich Miller pointed out was, quote, a nod to the high end meal kit delivery company that had one of the worst stock debuts in 2017 and has struggled to hold on to customers, which I thought was great and 100% accurate. But anyway, Caitlin, do explain. What is this proposal? What the hell so is this proposal? This is like an amazing euphemism because it sounds like an amazing CSA or something. Right. Um, it, it is not. It is basically a very old school government commodities program. What they're proposing to do is for roughly 80% of SNAP households, um, cutting their cash benefits in half. They'll still get half their cash benefits, so they will be able to go to the store with some money. Um, but the rest of that money, they'll instead get a box of pre-selected government stores, canned and shelf-stable items. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know exactly what will be in the box, but we do know that um, the USDA closely modeled this program off of a uh, program that already exists for senior citizens. And they tend to get things like um, rice, cereal, canned fruits and vegetables. They get a lot of juice. They get a processed cheese product. 
um, peanut butter. Powdered milk. Powdered milk. You're absolutely, they do get powdered milk, and they hate the powdered milk. Yeah. As as I have seen when I've visited distribution centers and things like that, they do not like the powdered milk. Um, So, yeah, we don't know exactly what this program would look like. There are a lot of questions about how the boxes would be distributed and delivered, and would there be any personalization for people with you know, um, allergies or um, medically necessary, you know, limited diets or uh, religious observations or things like that. It's a lot of unanswered questions. We do know USDA's main priority for this program was saving money, um, and they are quite insistent that it would save uh, quite a lot of money over the next decade. So yeah. that's their motivation for, for suggesting it. Right. And I've got I've definitely got some questions about that. I think did you <laughs> did you quote um, did Kevin Concanon give you a quote? Um, and for those of you who remember, he oversaw snap under Obama um, that like. What, what did he say? He said something like he doesn't know where this came from, but he thinks that the people um, who wrote it up were also watching silent movies <laughs> like, <laughs> to, like, to, to sort of, you know, build off of, yeah, build off of what you said. It's like a depression era, um, you know, revisiting of a depression era kind of, um, program or the way it looked like way back then. Um, so what, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is really confusing to me because it seems like, um, it's sort of swapping a market-based policy structure that, like, neoliberals and conservatives would really like, one in which, like, people, recipients spend their money at local businesses. Um, like, it's it's shifting from that to, like, a provisional structure more commonly associated with lower-income socialist countries. So I, I don't get it. Like, who... Where did this come from? Who's I like? Who supports this, basically? <laughs> who um, in government? Well, who in our country? You love this program. <laughs> yeah, You're, I mean, you make a great point, and that was the first reaction when this budget came out, when this proposal came out. The reaction from both the anti-hunger sort of advocacy community, but also from sort of economists and people who rigorously study the program. It's just like across the board, everyone was sort of like, what is this with one voice? You know, like we have never heard of this before. Yeah. No one has ever suggested this. You know, Congress had, I I think something like two dozen hearings about the future of SNAP where they had all kinds of experts in to suggest different directions the program could go in. No one ever suggested anything like this. (laughs) So it really is out of the blue. Yeah. Um, that said, there seems to be a lot of support for it um, in the administration, at least. You know, the Secretary of Agriculture has been extremely defensive of the idea, and um, so is the Undersecretary for Nutrition. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's hard to say exactly where it came from or who supports it outside of the administration, but certainly some people at USDA think this is a really great idea. Right. Um, like, because the, they're not biased at all. I, you know, I keep actually, <laughs> I keep thinking, I have a lot of friends who work in the USDA and who have worked there for um, many, many years and, co- like, a, you know, started there under Obama. And I can't help but wonder what the kind of, like, rank and file think of what's going on because the direction has changed um, 
so much in the past year and a half. So I, I don't know. It just it seems like it would be crazy to kind of be experiencing this massive sea change um, in a short period of time. But I digress. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like uh, re- I mean, especially retailers, right? I feel like Walmart and Target's lobbyists are like, oh my god, <laughs> we have what is going on? You know, because they stand to lose a lot of money if this um, if something like this actually gets uh, implemented. Yeah, they. I mean, they stand to lose literally billions of dollars, right? And I, I think that's why we've seen two different trade associations representing retailers, both the Food Marketing Institute and the National Grocery Association have come out with very strongly worded statements to the effect of, you know, we do not back this plan. We are concerned about it. This would hurt our industries. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of evidence that it would. I mean, interestingly, I was just reading a, um, a, a grocery chain Um, in my hometown. It's called Topps Markets. It's like a a sort of regional chain in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. They just filed for bankruptcy. And I was reading back about some of their financial troubles. And apparently one of the things that uh, initially cut into their earnings was when there were snap cuts several years ago and they saw sales go down because they make so much money off of food stamp recipients. And so they pointed that out as an early factor that sort of destabilized the company and caused them to file for bankruptcy. I mean, that that's what they're pointing to. It's hard to say, obviously, if, if that's really the case or not, how big of a factor that was. But there's absolutely no doubt that um, SNAP recipients are a major market for mm-hmm. a number of large retailers. Yeah. Not just large retailers, but also small retailers, right? You think about farmers markets or independent grocery stores in rural areas or things like that. So yeah, they're very alarmed by this proposal. Yeah. And just to kind of, you know, like talk a little bit more about what you touched on in terms of nobody knows how this would work logistically. Like what are there? I mean, I have so many questions about this, you know, in terms of like the infrastructure. I mean, no major grocery store has even Amazon has kind of conquered the like last minute or last mile delivery challenge with with, you know, getting food to people um, in a cost-effective way, uh, you know, in terms of, like, yeah, de- like home delivery, right? So I don't know how the government is going to crack this nut and and who absorbs those delivery costs, like, who pays for them? Um, how is this inevitably less expensive? I mean, I think there are so many, like, unanswered. I mean, it seems to me, like, what are some of the other unanswered questions? Or maybe they are answered. Um, do, have you seen, like, any kind of a plan for what this would look like to, in implementation, in the implementation phase? Yeah, so I think early on when this was first announced, we were all sort of, I guess, probably because Director Mulvaney referred to it as a, a blue apron type program, we were all thinking about this like, oh man, all these boxes are going to be sent through the mail to people's individual doorsteps. Um, it seems to me based on the reporting that I've done since then and the way that USDA is describing the program, and in particular, the way that they have likened it to the Commodity Supplemental Food Program, which is the food box program for seniors that Mm -hmm. I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. it seems very likely to me that delivery would actually be outsourced to nonprofits, uh, largely food banks, because that's how the senior food box program works. Okay. So under that model... You do not get your box of food delivered to your doorstep. You have to go to your nearest food bank or maybe 
um, public library or um, low-income housing complex, you know, whatever the distribution center is for that food bank, and you pick it up there. And then the food bank essentially eats those costs or or volunteers, um, you know, provide the labor for free so there is no cost. I mean, it's, it's pretty radical to suggest that sort of like this massive government task would be outsourced to the charitable sector, but right. kind of seems to be the suggestion. Yeah, because f- food banks, you know, it's not like they, um, they're, they've got tons of money <laughs> to, to be able to figure this one out and have this uh, kind of burden placed on them. Okay. Um, so I think it's, it's what also has kind of struck me as ironic about the timing of these, um, or just the fact that we're talking about cutting um, these, uh, you know, benefits is a recent report that you covered, um, which came out from uh, the Urban Institute and the University of Illinois, which found that benefits are already too low in 99% of U.S. counties. Can you tell us a little bit more about this study? Yeah, so this is a really interesting study. So basically what the researchers did was uh, calculate the average cost of a meal Mm -hmm. for a low-income family in every county in the contiguous U.S. They left out Alaska and Hawaii because they have um, sort of astronomical food costs, not entirely comparable. But for the continental U.S., for every county, they identified the average cost of a meal, and then they compared that to the average food stamp benefit in that county. And... um, as we were talking about before, there's a wide range in benefits. So what they decided to do was use the absolute maximum. This is the money that USDA gives to people who are absolutely destitute, have no money coming in. Um, this, this, it's the most you can get, right? Mm-hmm. And even the most you can get was substantially less, about almost a third less than the cost of the average meal. Wow. Uh, okay. So, so, uh, all right. <laughs> Sorry. It just it seems like crazy. It just seems crazy to me. And this I'm sure is exacerbated in certain areas where the food costs are much, much higher, like Manhattan, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think one of the main arguments they were trying to make, and this, this is something is, that is important to point out is that, you know, food stamps is called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance right. Program. It isn't necessarily intended to cover the full cost of every meal. In fact, congressional intent is that it cover about 70%. Okay. But this study identified that even the maximum benefit amount that is theoretically supposed to cover more than that is not sufficient, right? Yeah. And they showed that it's particularly insufficient in both urban areas with really high cost of food. So mm-hmm. like um, New York, where you are, DC, where I am, um, basically any major city, but also a lot of rural areas where the cost of groceries tends to be really high. There's also a big gap there. Hmm. Um, and that study was sort of questioning, you know, why doesn't SNAP account for the different costs of living and the different costs of food in different areas of the country. Is there a reason for that? Is that like, is it just like logistically um, too hard or too difficult to do that from like an an administrative perspective or have they, you know, why I guess is the reason why that doesn't exist now? So it actually does exist now for Hawaii and Alaska, right? So, um, it is possible to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, USDA just has 
not chosen to do so <laughs> thus not far. Okay. There are definitely a, a lot of calls for them to, to change that part of the program. Okay. Well, something else maybe we can look for in the next farm bill. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up in just one minute, but um, not to be, you know, I just, I want to, I think it's important to kind of relate these issues to um, everyday people and listeners and, and kind of bring it back. Um, like, so can you, in your opinion, this is just your opinion, why should people care about this issue? How does it affect, if at all, everyday Americans? Well, I would say, I mean, I, I would hope that most people would care um, simply out of like a baseline sense of human decency yeah. and empathy for, yeah, <laughs> for the less fortunate. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, I would emphasize that SNAP is designed to help people who come across unexpected temporary hardship. And SNAP participation rates skyrocketed during the Great Recession and are just beginning to fall back substantially now. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, even if food stamps seems like a program that is not relevant to your life, that hasn't been relevant in the past, I think a lot of current participants probably felt that way at one point in their lives, too. Yeah. Um, so to just recall that it's, it is a, a universal safety net, and um, it's it's there for me, and it's it's there for you if if we ever find ourselves in that position. Yes, and there is absolutely no shame in relying on a program like this because that is exactly its intention for people to use when they need it. And you never know. Um, okay, so last final final question. Uh, what can people do about this? Um, you know, if they are somebody who cares about it, and I'm I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this show um, really do care about this. Um, so yeah, what can, what can we do kind of to advocate for, or, or specifically like against these proposals and then for things that we really want to see um, in the upcoming farm bill? Yeah, so this is a little cliche, but um, call, call your congressman, call your senator. Um, I think a lot of people were alarmed by what was in the budget proposal, but that ultimately doesn't mean anything. What mm-hmm does mean something is what Congress puts together for the farm bill. Mm -hmm. So if you feel strongly about these issues, especially if you uh, live in a district where your congressman is on, or congressman or senator is on the um, House or Senate agriculture committees, Mm -hmm. definitely make your voice heard because they will be paying attention to their constituents right now and they will definitely be paying attention to the farm bill. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Absolutely. Okay. Um, to read more about these issues and other topics she's covered, of course, uh, check out Wonkvog um, on the Was- at the Washington Post and also follow her at Caitlin Dewey um, on Twitter. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support as well as our engineer, David Tadashore, who joins us today. Very exciting to have you um, working with me today, David. Um He's clearly very excited, too. Okay, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe um, and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.